You ready for your big theological word? Immutable. Immutable. It's a big word that means he doesn't change. Let's go Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in a little bit. Uh, We also have some physical Bibles in the little racks underneath the seats, kind of scattered around. Uh, There's not one for every seat. We don't have that kind of budget. But there's just kind of scattered around. So if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, man, we'd love for you to take that one home. Uh, It's more valuable to us for you to take it home and start reading it than for to sit underneath the chair for a week. That's that's lame, all right? So uh, go take that home and read it if you don't have one. Uh, we value God's word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin to draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. And we also believe that it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do, that it's a tool in his hands to accomplish his purpose. And I don't, I don't have to think I have to tell you this. God is pretty handy with some tools, all right? And so uh, open up that Bible, start reading it. We think good things will start happening, not in a, a magical kind of way, but God's going to introduce you to himself, and that's a good thing. Uh, so we are in the early stages of a series on the book of Ephesians. Um, uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And I don't know if I gave the guys a heads up. Garrett's looking at me all crazy like, do we have a map? We don't have a map. All right, so let's pretend we had a map. It'd be up there on the screen. It'd be all nice and neat. And be all, you know, we'd have a slick little presentation, but we, you know, we don't have that. You know? So picture the Mediterranean. Picture Turkey. All right? And so Ephesus is a port city, or what used to be a port city, uh, on uh, the coast of Turkey on the Mediterranean. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing else. Oh, hey! See... What just happened is we have a much more competent, like, cave crew than we do person on the stage talking. <laughs> that, that, that conversation should have started this morning of, hey, Garrett, I'm going to re- reference a map. Can you put that up on the screen? And he still fixes all my problems. By the way, I'm going to reference the picture of the temple later, too. All right, so... <laughs> So there's the Mediterranean, there's, there's Ephesus, a little pin there on the coast of Turkey. Uh, at the time that Paul was writing this letter, about 60 to 62 AD, uh, Ephesus was a big, big deal. All right? uh, it was one of the fourth or fifth biggest cities in the world at the time, quite metropolitan, cosmopolitan. Uh, there was a silversmith guild there uh, that made statues of all the Greek and Roman gods and shipped them all over the Mediterranean in the ancient world. And so Ephesus was was kind of rolling, man. It was a little bit of a boom town. And uh, so uh, not only, though, was there a silversmith guild there, but there was also a grand amphitheater in the city that held like 20,000-plus people. And so Ephesus, at the time that Paul is writing this letter, was an economic and a cultural hub. But both of those things took a back seat to the real cash cow of the city, which was the temple of Artemis. Do we have a picture of that? Look at there. So that's not what it actually looks like. That's what an artist thinks it might have looked like, and it's actually on a smaller scale, all right, because all that's left there today are ruins. You could go to Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus today, and take a little tour, pay your little money, and all that kind of stuff, uh, and visit the little square on the ground where the temple used to be. Now, many of you may be familiar with the temple already because you're familiar with an incredibly important list, or, or an important list for a lot of people, called the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. The temple of Artemis was on that list. And so, as you can imagine, 
Ephesus wasn't just an economic and a cultural hub. It's kind of a tourist trap, right? That temple had incredible sway, incredible power over the city. It brought in people from all over the ancient world. They would pay money to visit the temple. They would pay money to lodge into the temple. They would pay money to eat in the city. They would buy wares and take them back home. Ephesus was a boom town, and the temple was to thank for that. And several years before this letter is written, the Apostle Paul is working and living in Ephesus. He spends three years there, two to three years there, uh, preaching the gospel and planting the church. And the gospel goes forward so powerfully uh, that it begins to cause some problems. As soon as people start worshiping Jesus instead of Artemis, who was worshipped in that temple, it started chipping away at big business. Anybody shocked to realize that big business had a problem with that? Right? Big business always has a problem when you start chipping away at big, big business, right? And so Acts 19 spells out the story for us that, that the silversmiths in that town, the ones who are making their living off of the worship of the false god Artemis, they start a riot and they get Paul run out of town. And so several years later, Paul writes a letter back to a church that he not only knew but loved dearly, right? And Paul knows exactly what he's speaking to when he writes that letter. He knows the culture of the city. He knows exactly what walls need to come down in order for the gospel to go forward powerfully and for Jesus' name to be famous, right? And so we talked a couple weeks ago uh, about how he opens up his letter unpacking some absolutely massive theological truths, right? What were those truths? That God is big and that God is in control. That's basically what he said. That he is overall, that, and that he has all things in his hand. We, in fact, the language that Paul uses is that God's plan is from before the foundation of the world. That he is eternal and eternally working. And then part of that, uh, that before the foundation of the world plan included the redemption of sinful people for his glory. He's not making this up as he goes, but rather he is working on an eternal scale and will most assuredly bring about all of his purposes. So Paul chooses to open up his letter to them that way, not because he wants to start a debate over how much sovereignty and control does God exercise versus man's autonomy and will and all and how those fit together. Paul had his mind made up about that. Paul doesn't introduce that stuff in his letter to the Ephesian church to start a controversy or a debate. It's because those qualities, those characteristics about our God stand in stark contrast to who Artemis was purported to be. Artemis was capricious. Artemis could be bought and swayed, but our God, no, 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 no. His plan is eternal, and he cannot be manipulated, and he cannot be thwarted, we said. You can't tell our God what to do. You can't bring the right offering to sway his opinion on things. He can't be bought. Are you kidding me? Not Yahweh. So Paul opens up his letter to them by unpacking those massive, massive things. So a couple weeks ago, uh, we left off in verse 10. So you ready to look at verse 11? Paul says this, In him, talking about Jesus, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And so we already got to call, call a time out. The phrase in him uh, is a phrase that you're going to hear over and over and over again in the letter to the Ephesians. All right, um, it's a phrase that you're going to hear a lot. In fact, you hear it so often in the Greek that most English translators actually take some of them out 
All right? it's, it happens over and over and over again in the Greek, and so it reads incredibly redundant, and so sometimes there's like two or three in a single sentence. In him, in him, in him. And so English translators go, ah, oh, that, that, that's kind of confusing to read. And so they pull that, a couple of those occurrences out of there. Um, but here's the thing. Paul usually writes with, with purpose and intent, right? He doesn't just throw them in there to, you know, for kicks and giggles. He, he's doing something right there, right? And so um, he's doing it on purpose. And so he's going to use that phrase, in him or in Christ, is another way he says it, uh, over and over again. It's to prove something. So there's most assuredly one message to the letter of the Ephesians. But that doesn't mean there's only one way of looking at it, okay? There's multiple angles that we can look at that one message. So we're calling our series To the Saints, uh, and it's because we're going to be focusing primarily on how what Paul is writing affects and shapes us as a church body, right? But we could also look at the letter to the Ephesians from the angle of identity. The fact that those who now belong to Jesus are a new creation. Paul's going to use the phrase in him or in Christ over and over and over again to differentiate between those who were walking in a former way and those who are now identified by belonging to Jesus. And so whenever we come to the phrase in him, be thinking identity, right? So he says that, because we are now in him, because we have a new identity, we have obtained a what? An inheritance. So what's an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is something that's given to you because of your status as a child, right? Do you earn an inheritance? Nope. Do you figure out the, the, the clue or the riddle to, to gain entry into the inheritance? Maybe in some weird twisted case, but not in the real deal, right? Do you, do you have to unlock some magical step or, or achieve some level of success in order to get an inheritance? Or is it yours because of your status as a child of the one who has achieved? Right? That's what an inheritance is. It's a gift that belongs to you not because you've achieved something, but because of your position as a child of the one who does own everything. You didn't earn it's yours because of nothing more than relational position, right? So let's keep reading. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, that's a, that's a big word, right? Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the word predestined is a big word that has even bigger implications behind it, right? So in case you're new to the Bible, here's the thing. It means exactly what you think it means. God has pre, as in before, destinied us. Wait, what? Is that allowed? Can he do that? What about, what about my autonomy, right? What about, what about my say-so in things and my will on this matter? How does all that fit together? I don't know. I mean, I have an idea. In fact, I'm pretty sold on my, my idea. I can sit down and I believe winsomely over a cup of coffee, sell you on why, why it works out in this way because of this reason. But there are people who love Jesus who are really smart that disagree with me. Some of you may even be in the room. I get, 
is it, is it okay for Christians to come to different conclusions on things that the Bible hasn't spelled out in detail? The answer is yes, right? What's not okay is, us, is for us to balk at things that the Bible does spell out in detail, right? And so, does man have the ability to choose things? Absolutely. Does the Bible say that God chooses and foreordains and predestines? Absolutely. How do those things work together? We can talk about that. But we don't, know, have, we don't have to know the perfect answer to it because the Bible doesn't give it to us, right? Is that okay? Is it, is, it allow, is it okay for us to have mystery over the things that God is doing in every detail? Does it negate what he's doing if we don't understand every little angle of every little thing he's doing? I hope so. I hope it's okay because, like, we're never going to get there, right? Like, if I'm big enough and smart enough to figure God out in every little detail, maybe I should apply for the job. <laughs> Give God a little workplace competition, right? Step up his game, God. Let's go. Yeah, we don't... If I can figure him out on every level, then maybe I ought to be him. And obviously, that's ridiculous, right? And so is it possible that God moves and works and does things on a level that's higher than my capacity to understand? Man, I hope so. I hope so. So he says, and he has predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Look at verse, well, here Paul is reminding the Ephesian church again that God is big and that he's in control, right? So it's been two weeks since we talked about this stuff. We, we talked about it, you know, just a couple weeks ago, and I know we had this little break in the middle because of VBS emphasis and all that kind of stuff, but we talked about it just two weeks ago. What was Paul's intent then? To show that God is not on the same level as Artemis, that he is moving and working, he is big and in control. You think God, uh, you think Paul has changed his, his tone and his subject in a paragraph? So we've talked a little bit about how uh, the type of series that we're doing right now where we walk line by line through the scriptures uh, has things that are valuable. One of those things that are valuable is that everything we talked about is connected to the stuff we talked about before, right? So has Paul's tone and intent changed in a sentence? No. So what's he doing? He's reminding the Ephesian church that God and Artemis are not on the same level. That God is big. That he is in control. Look at verse 12. So that. Time out. Those of you who have been around a while know what's going on here. So we've talked about this, this kind of concept before, but uh, this will be the first time we've come to this phrase, so that, uh, in this letter. And here's the thing. The phrase, so that, happens a few times in incredibly important places in the letter to the Ephesians. All right? And so uh, it will serve our purpose as well so that if anybody in here is new, we need to kind of spell it out. That way they don't miss something huge. All right? So the phrase, so that, is what's called a conditional statement. Right? And everybody in here who's got any level of education already knows that. And so I promise I'm not trying to patronize you, but let me just spell it out in detail. The phrase, so that, creates a situation where two actions are no longer on the same level. One becomes more valuable than the other, all right? And so if I say, I'm going to blank so that blank can happen, 
already we've created a situation where whatever's coming second is more valuable than what came first, right? right? And, and so, I promise I'm not patronizing, but it, we fail to, to recognize how values shift when we do that in our, in our sentence structure, okay? And so, I'm going to blank so that blank can happen. That second blank is more valuable. It's more joy-producing. It changes things, and it, and it means that the thing that happened in the first blank is now a means to the greater end, right? So follow me here. Paul just said that our eternally big, eternally, infinitely good God has a plan that has existed from before the foundation of the world, that he is redeeming and saving, that he is uh, making all things new, and that part of that plan is that he would give us an incredible inheritance so that. So if that's the means to a greater end, what comes after the so that? What does it say? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of what? His glory. So Paul just, the Bible teaches that God does all things in order to bring himself more glory. Is that okay? Like, is God allowed to do things in such a way that he gets more glory for it? I mean, that, doesn't that strike us as a little conceited? I mean, is this a place to be honest? Is that where you lean? Because it's kind of where I lean. Is God allowed to do things for his glory? What if I told you that not only is the answer yes, but necessarily yes? What would be a working definition of idolatry? I would say it would be to exalt good things into an ultimate thing, thereby knocking God out of the category of ultimate thing. Right? In other words, it's to take something that may have value, may be good, but to make it the top of the pedestal good, and thereby God is no longer occupying the top of the pedestal good. That's, that's idolatry. So the question is begged, is God an idolater? When I say that out loud, you go, uh-oh. <laughs> Does God take things that are of lesser value and put them in the category of ultimate value? No, right? I, at least I hope not. Does he take things and put them on the highest pedestal? But isn't, but isn't it virtuous to honor others above yourself? I mean, isn't that like a biblical command or something? Yeah, but you and I never belonged at the front of the line in the first place, right? And so that command's really more about humbling ourselves than it is about ascribing actual value to something, right? And so does God ascribe inappropriate value to things? No, no, he doesn't. It would be outside of God's character, to celebrate anything more than himself because that would be ascribing value at a higher level than he does to things that are ultimately valuable. 
And that doesn't mean he doesn't value and honor other things. This is not a zero-sum game. But God will always see and value things correctly, right? He will always take good things and put them in the correct category of good. And he will always take the ultimate thing and put it in the, ulti- in the correct category of ultimate, right? And unlike my sinful heart, he never gets those categories mixed up. Right? I, I fall victim to that sometimes. I, idolatry is prone to my heart. I'm, I am easily, I easily fall into the rut of taking things that are valuable and making them ultimate. But God doesn't fall victim to that, does he? And he always, always does what is right. That's why the Bible endlessly talks about the glory of God. It's everywhere in the scriptures. Like seriously, everywhere. Those of you who are working through Bible reading plans, start paying attention to it from now on, I promise it's going to be everywhere. You're going to see it all over the place. God does this for his glory, and God does that for his glory. Does that mean that God doesn't have other things that, that are intentions of his heart and his character? No, but it, he absolutely has those things, but those things all play into his glory somehow. God does all things for his glory. So why does that tend to rub us the wrong way? I mean, again, you want the honest answer? Isn't it because we all kind of wish that that glory was heaped on us? Don't we all kind of want to be the one that's chiefly praised? I know I'm guilty of that. I, I want to be the one that's doted on. I want to be the one that's celebrated. I want to be the one that everybody points to and says, that's the guy. <laughs> Is your heart any different than mine? <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> I, I want to be the one that's chiefly praised. And this is exactly what happened in the garden. Like, we just had VBS. Uh, one of our days, the story, the Bible stories for one of our days, focused on Adam and Eve's failure in the garden, okay? Right, and so, in case you're only kind of moderately aware of the story, let me just spell it out for you. Adam and Eve's sin wasn't the biting of some dumb piece of fruit. It was a rejection of God. It was a rejection of his character and his authority over their lives. It was a heart-level grasp at his glory. The serpent's temptation wasn't, look at this piece of fruit, isn't it tasty looking? Aren't you hungry? What does he say? Don't you want to be like... The temptation in the garden wasn't over some dumb piece of fruit. That was the fleshing out of a heart stance that happened before the bite ever happened. They grabbed at his glory and said, I want that for myself. Oh, but do not miss this. In God's goodness, in his goodness, instead of wiping out the glory thieves and starting over, he is instead showing his glory to all of creation by loving the unlovable. Right? Instead of saying, that's it, I'm out, we're going to start this over so that we can create some that don't try to rob this from me, he says, no, 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 watch this, I'm going to love them anyways. Look out, world. Look how amazing I am. I'm going to love that which would seek to undermine me. He loves 
the unlovable. It is good news that God does things for his own glory. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. It's his glory that drives his love for the unlovely. Otherwise, he'd just go take a vacation. Look at verse 13. In him, there's that phrase again, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says that for those who now belong to Jesus, and he clarifies who those those people are, right? That um, those who have heard the word of truth of the gospel and believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he said he would do, right? He clarifies who those people are. He says that for those who now belong to Jesus, Paul says that those people have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but just the way my personality works, when I hear seal, I think marine mammal that may or may not be trained to play bicycle horns. Um, That's obviously not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about that little wax thing you see on envelopes in the movies, right? They drip the wax on the folded edge, and they take their ring or that little press thing, and they mash it on there, and it seals the the letter with the official seal of whoever sent it, right? And what's the purpose of that? So when the letter is handed to the recipient, they have immediate confirmation that that letter is untainted. That letter hasn't been messed with in any way. They have confidence that that, that that letter is exactly what the writer of the letter intended, right? Paul says that for those who now belong to Jesus, that he gives them the Holy Spirit, God himself, to act as a seal, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are his. That they're his. But that's not all he says. Look at 14 again. Who is a guarantee of our inheritance. I don't know if you pay attention to the world the same way I pay attention to the world. It's just kind of the way my head works. We live in a world where it's hard to trust a lot of people's promises, right? Like we get, I don't know about you, but I have kind of whole categories of people that I just don't believe what they say. And sometimes it's linked to professions, whether that's politicians or advertisers. I mean, isn't there a reason we have such a thing as lawyer jokes, right? And, and it, it's weird because like all of us probably, myself included, have personal relationships with people who do those things for a living. And they're some of the nicest, most stand-up people we've ever met. But listen, those stereotypes exist for a reason, right? The world's just kind of kicked it into us. Beat us while we were down. And so for a lot of people, a guarantee rings hollow. Am I alone in that? But what have we been talking about for the last three weeks? I mean, not just today, not just two weeks ago when we were... Uh, But, I mean, even last week when we did our VBS theme and we looked at Colossians 1, what have we been saying over and over and over again for the last three weeks? Is there anyone more trustworthy? Is there anyone or anything more competent and good than our God? So when he gives a guarantee, can it be trusted? I think so. I think so. The Greek word for the word guarantee is the word, a word that means deposit or down payment. Basically, what Paul just said is that, <laughs> I mean, follow this train of logic for a second. The Bible teaches that 
the fix for everything that went wrong in the garden was that God was going to make all things new. He was going to give us himself and that he was going to uh, undo the brokenness that happened in the garden. And so uh, the, the final fix for all this is that we would come to a point one day where we will be eternally with God and the world will no longer be stained and broken by sin and death. Right? That's the ultimate fix that the Bible promises. It promises it in Genesis 3, and it fulfills it in Revelation 21 and 22. All right? That's the final fix for everything that went wrong in the garden, that we would get God, we would be with him forever, and that he would fix, reconcile all things back to himself so that the world would no longer be broken and stained by sin. Right? Paul just said that God gives us himself now. And all that other stuff, it's coming down the pipe. That he gives us himself now as a guarantee, a down payment for all the other stuff that he's going to fix later. Like you, get, you get into a weird place when you try to make analogies for infinite and eternal things, all right? Uh, but let's just venture down that path for a second. Like, say you went to take out a mortgage on a home, all right? You go into the bank to file the last bit of paperwork, sign your name on the dotted line, and you walk in the door with 99.99% of the loan. And you slap it down on the desk. And then you grin real big. Like, don't worry, Mr. Banker. I'm good for the rest. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. We get God. And all that other stuff, don't worry, he'll make good on his promise. <laughs> if the final fix for all of this is that we get to be with him forever, that he is ours and we are his in a world that's no longer broken and stained by sin, we get him now and all that other stuff is coming down the pipe. Don't worry, he's going to make good on his promise. We get God himself as the down payment. You kidding me? <laughs> Not too shabby. We get him as a guarantee for what is to come. And the rest, don't worry, he's trustworthy. But don't forget who Paul's talking to, right? We're going to keep coming back to this. Don't forget who Paul's talking to. The saints in Ephesus live and operate in a world that is steeped in the worship of a false goddess, right? Who never makes good on her promises. I mean, you think they get the clue eventually, right? You'd think they'd like, finally wake up to the reality that Artemis doesn't actually come through on any of this stuff. Like The Greek and Roman world would literally bathe and feed their statues, their idols. All right? Here's the problem, though. That food was never eaten. They'd collect it the next morning and sell it in the market. And those statues were never anything more than a hunk of metal or wood or rock. Artemis, at best, was capricious. Artemis, in actuality, was lifeless. She can't deliver on anything. You kidding me? You gotta feed your God and bathe your God, and you have to pick up all the pieces the next morning because she didn't actually eat that food you gave her. Lifeless. Paul here reminds the church at Ephesus our God, though, He is moving and acting. He is promising and fulfilling. He is redeeming and reconciling. He is eternal, and he is good. 
And why is he doing any of it? Look at the tail end of verse 14 again. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, comma, to the praise of what? So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press into a God who is infinitely more faithful than Artemis or any other false god. We press into a God who is pleased to give us himself. I mean, he's not handing out some dumb consolation prize here. He's giving us himself, right? He's giving us the most valuable thing he can give us, even while he promises to give us everything else. He does all of it, not because we've unlocked some secret or achievement, but because it is good and right according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't need to be convinced it's worth it. It's all his idea. You're not going to do something to mess that up. It's his plan from before the foundation of the, of the world. So what does any of this mean on a practical level? It means on the dark day. On the dark day, it means that he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. No matter how dark. He won't renege on his promises to you. He's already given you himself. Is there any other good thing he would withhold? And so if you're in the middle of the dark day, what do you do? You press in. You don't pull away. You press in. Well, what about on the victorious day? It means that he's already given you the best thing he can, right? Himself. Those temporary victories are good, but listen, he has loved you way better than the temporary victory. To lean on the temporary when you have the eternal, short-sighted. Or as the old hymn used to say, right? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. In a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It'll be a chance for you to take stock with how you've been walking lately, right? Do you walk and live like God himself is with you, that he is ever faithful. It'll change the way you see some things. What about if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus? How do you respond this morning? You meet him. Maybe you've been here for a while and you've been working through the truth claims of who Jesus is and what he's calling his people to do and to be, and maybe today's the day that you're going to trust him for salvation. You repent of your sin and you come to him as Lord. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to God this morning. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And listen, if you need somebody to talk to, we're going to have a couple people down here to talk. But each one of us, myself included, responds to God's word this morning by pressing in instead of pulling away. Our God is good. For those of you who don't know him yet, come to know him this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the letter to the Ephesians. Thank you that you are a God who is eternal and eternally working. Thank you for being a God who stands in stark contrast to every other thing this world chases after. God, would you draw us to yourself? I don't know how all of that works. I know I'm called to respond to you. Uh, the Bible seems to paint the picture that you give me the ability to do that. I don't know how all that works, but I trust that you're big and I trust that you're good and I trust that you're in control. 
So I'm going to walk in faithfulness. God, for those in here who don't know you this morning, would you make yourself known to them in a way that changes them for eternity? Would you help us respond to you this morning in whatever way you're calling us to? Show your goodness today. In your name we pray. Amen.